Pushkin. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. You can find inspiring stories almost anywhere. For instance, check out the co-founders of Girls Who Do Interiors. This Miami-based design company was started by three friends when they were still in school. And right from the start, they turned to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards. And they handle them all in one place with the Chase mobile app. It's so important to have that kind of help when you're just starting out. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank N.A. Member FDIC. Smart journalism. Fascinating topics. Words that describe CNN's podcast, The Assignment with Audie Cornish. Last year, the Army missed its recruitment goal. It had 65,000 spots to fill and came up 10,000 short of that target. Why is it so hard to recruit? How's the Pentagon responding? And how are the voices of service members on social media shifting the balance? Listen to The Assignment with Audie Cornish wherever you get your podcasts. This is Talk Easy. I'm Sam Fragoso. Welcome to the show. Hey everyone, for the past six weeks from the confines of his home office in Texas, Matthew McConaughey has been on an international press tour for his new book. He says the book is a love letter to life, about weathering the storm and making it out on the other side. McConaughey, to his credit, has had his fair share of trials and tribulations, ups and downs, speed bumps and roadblocks. It's called Green Lights a memoir that catalogs the first 50 years of his life. To do so, he uses clues from his diaries, which he has impressively maintained for 35 years. Now, I will admit, I waded into green lights rather skeptically. Maybe you will too. A famous, staggeringly handsome and talented actor telling you and I how to live, how to improve our conditions? How could his life possibly speak to ours? I don't know if it's his southern accent or his gift for storytelling, but about 30 minutes into the audiobook, my skepticism faded away. It impressed me by what it's not. It's not a self-help book. It's not unrelentingly pretentious or self-serious. It's not telling you how to live. It's telling you how he has lived. That includes the missteps and the triumphs. He's had plenty of both. If we're lucky... That's true for each of us. To fail is to be bold enough to strive for something more, something different. Two years ago, Matthew McConaughey searched for something different, 
a different kind of expression we'd seen from him on screen for nearly three decades. Two years ago, he purchased a one-way ticket to the desert and wrote a book, the story of his life thus far. Two years later, he's here with us to share some of that story. I hope you enjoy it. Hello. Easy, easy. Good morning. Good afternoon. How are we doing? How are you doing? Pretty good, man. Uh, my day's just kind of getting started where I am. You're my first discussion I've had, but we're doing good, man. We're just trying to families all together, trying to, uh, you know, the powwow at the end of every day. We have an 88 year old mother with us who's got susceptible lungs and sort of the powwow every day when my wife and I are like, so what do we do? What do we not do? Da, 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 Thanksgiving's coming up. For seven months, the last words we say after every single thing, every time we talk about it, we go, and we don't know. <laughs> a little exhausting, but hey, well, we're up for it. We're up for it. We're living in a year of uh, I don't knows. It is the I don't know year, the limbo year, man. And that's the kind of, it's a different kind of fatigue than I do know. And I put in the hard work because I'm going after what I do know. That's what people kind of can lose their grease in. <laughs> I wondered how you had been handling this year because you're someone who makes plans far in advance. Yeah. You're someone who works strategically towards those goals yeah. throughout your career since you were a teenager. How have the past nine, 10 months really treated you mentally? Well, I had two inherent purposes that were I already had initialized before the pandemic came, meaning I immediately said, all right, my common denominator, my one thing is that I know that is that I know is keep the family safe. Do what you can to keep the family safe. Mom, you're pulling you out of the retirement community. You're coming with us. She didn't want to come move in with us. She's doing just fine in her own community, taking care of herself. But we got her to understand that now we have a system down where she's fine. Then it's the three kiddos finding some structure for them. Because when we first started off, it was like every day was a Saturday. It was kind of anarchy. We didn't have any structure, you know, and it was, you couldn't tell Saturday from Monday and that wasn't going to last long. But then I also, um, I was just finishing the book. So it was, oh, I'm going to go around America in person and I was going to do stand up tour and tell stories from it. <laughs> and that was going to be super cool. I was going to be in Austin. I was going to do two shows a night in Austin for two weeks to do sort of a workshop it and then head out on the road with it. I don't mean to, uh, Laugh at your plans, by the way. Oh, no, but I love it. <laughs> because those plans were like, no, that's not happening. Looks like it's going to all be virtual and remote. So that was a daily thing that I was working on. After I handled family, I had something to do with what are my plans for the book and how do we get it out? Are people going to you know, enjoy the read, what have you? And then it turned into let's coordinate this remote tour around the world, which has given me something to do, which, as you know, from looking at the book, I need something to do. <laughs> Well, look, I'm happy to be something for you to do today. Well, I appreciate it. I'm looking forward to it. I'm enjoying doing it already. This has been a year of tremendous loss for so many people, which is why I wanted to start in 1992. It's then that you landed your first acting job in Dazed and Confused. Mm -hmm. Five days into filming, on August 17th of 1992, your father passes away. Can you take us back to that moment in your life? 
I go in the right bar at the right time, introduce myself to the right guy who was in town producing a movie called Daisy Confused. He asked me to come read for the role of David Wooderson. I do. Three lines turn into to me getting the job. I get invited to set one night to do a hair and makeup wardrobe test, not to act, and get invited into a scene that I completely improvised. And it worked. Everyone laughed. The director liked it too. So I got invited back the next night. And then I got invited back the next night. And then I got invited back the next night. And then I got invited back the next night. This is the fifth night. None of those, I think, actually scenes that were originally written in the script. But I was just getting written in the script. I was loving what I was doing. I was having fun at it. People were telling me I was good at it. They were paying me 320 bucks a day. I'd been working at Catfish Station as a waiter. And the most I'd made is $75 in tips a night. And... This is fun. It's the summer of 92. I was already in the summer flow, and my behind-the-camera life was very similar. So the segue was easy and fun and meeting these great people. I was in film school at the time studying behind the camera. So I'm in the master class now, and I'm in front of the camera. And it was, uh, I think, the night I was at home in my apartment with two roommates. We were sitting back into the night and having a beer or whatever, smoke watching, shooting the shit. And uh, my roommate comes down and goes, Ronnie, you need to call your mom. Because evidently my phone or I hadn't been there, my phone wasn't available or it was off or something. So I get on the phone with my mom and I remember very distinct that I was in the kitchen. And for whatever reason, I always find out about death in the kitchen. And I'm in the kitchen, white linoleum floors. I remember at the end of the kitchen, there's a little apartment door that opened to a very tiny, like three foot by five foot wooden porch. And it had blinds on the window. And I was looking at the blinds. It was not one of those porches you actually spend time on. It's just one of those little add-ons. So when they rent the apartment, they can go. And it has a porch, you know what I mean? <laughs> a university campus kind of wooden porch. And I'm looking at it, and she goes, Matthew, you there? And I go, yeah, me and Mom talk. And I could tell something's wrong with her. She goes, your dad died. And I remember my knees buckled, went to the ground, and began weeping, the disbelief, the shock, et cetera. I said, okay, well, I'll be there in a little bit. Houston, where mom was, was three and a half hours away. Made some coffee, woke up. My buddies threw stuff in a duffel bag for me, and uh, I was out the door and drove home. Obviously, that night, you know, we always talk. We always deal with death in the kitchen. Back in Houston, my two brothers and I and my mom up all night trying to work it out and grieving, et cetera. Did it again the next day. Death makes me very, very tired. Death makes me like almost narcoleptic. I'd always have hospitals. I can have a full night's sleep, fully prepared, but I go around death and I get narcoleptic. You know, I'm passing out in little naps through the day. Um, and then we have a big wake where all these people come over. Hundreds came over and dad had asked for an Irish wake. And then they told stories on him. Like my dad had taught us, hey, honesty and a deal and you handshake deals and you, and, you, and you live up to your word. And I remember I got up to speak to all of these people that were his friends and I started to denounce people going, and you, Chuck, so-and-so, owe my dad money, so you're going to pay my mom back. And I'm saying it out loud right now so everybody hears it and you'll live up to that contract. And meanwhile, I'm doing this. My older brother, Rooster's in the back going, shut it, shut it. Well, I call out all these people. You're paying my dad. Blah, blah, blah. Well, then my brother comes up later. And he goes, hey, little brother, you don't know. 
well, you know, dad, to the message and the messenger, there was a bit of a gap. I mean, dad owed a few things too, you know what I mean? And da, da, da. <laughs> so-and-so didn't really owe him that because of this. And I'm like, well, whatever, da, da, da. Anyway, four days after that, so now nine days after he moved on, I think, we decided it's time for me to go back and continue my job on Days Confused. And the first night, walking around uh, the football stadium with Richard Linklater, Richard, who's become a good friend, knew what I'd just been through and what I was going through. And I just, it's kind of, it, it had come to me on the drive back that, that night. Oh, even though he's physically gone, my father will never physically be here again. I can spiritually keep him alive. I can keep alive what he instilled in me, what I believed was honest and true for me, the values for me to take into my life. So I can keep his spirit alive, just keep living. I'll, I'll keep him alive. That was the just keep living. I remember saying, and I think that's what it's all about. Well, that night in the back in the scene, we go football scene, Randall Pink Floyd's going to say, do I sign the drug contract or not? And I didn't think about it. It just came out of my mouth. I don't know. Whatever you do, man, you just got to keep living, man. L-I-V-I-N. Threw it in the scene. Not to indulge in any alcohol, drugs, sex after 12, or any other illegal activity. Right. my shadow. Later, baby. Found that in your glove compartment, man. Hey, you know you're the third person who's given me this today? God. But what do you reckon you're going to do? I don't know, man. I'll probably end up signing. I just don't want to give in so easy. Man, it's the same bullshit they tried to pull in my day. You know, if it ain't that piece of paper, some other choice they're going to try and make for you. You got to do what Randall Pink Floyd wants to do, man. Let me tell you this. The older you do get, the more rules are going to try to get you to follow. <laughs> you just got to keep living, man. L-I-V-I-N. <laughs> Ended up working for another two weeks. Loved the job. Was more grounded than before, meaning I was still very happy to have that job and loved that I was doing something that for the first time I felt might be something I could follow through on and not just be a hobby. Might be something I could work at and make a living. And, 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 I, and I enjoyed it. But I, you know, you have a death of the father. You sober up. And I don't mean from external drugs or alcohol. I mean, you just sober up as, a, as an individual. The second lesson after J.K. Lydon that came from me from that was be less impressed, more involved. And I think a lot of the things that I, as a young man, was when my dad was alive, that I was revering in the world, mortal things I was revering. I think I was giving them too much credit and they were didn't have the confidence to face because of my reverence for them. And I remember many things that I was looking down upon in the world that I was condescending, patronizing, saying that's sloughing off, that's not worthy of me or my time. Those things rose up. So the things that I was revering lowered down to my eye level. The things that I was condescending rose up. And I remember going, boy, the world's flat. I see further, I see wider, I see clearer. And I stood up straighter without even knowing it. My heart was higher and my head was higher. And I was like, you can't be the boy. You can't be a boy anymore. Your dad's not here. Your safety net's not here. It's time for you to become a man. And that was the first two real lessons that came to me in that time. During that Irish wake, you're kind of acting as the prosecutor that your mother always wanted you to become. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it just dawned on me the kind of serendipitous cosmic nature of existence where your first real big role that broke you out after Days and Confused was in A Time to Kill, yeah. where you are playing an attorney. Yeah. You have talked about the film a lot. You have written about the film a lot. What I haven't heard you speak of is that its director, Joel Schumacher, passed away this summer. Yep. This is a book about the past and the present converging. Where does that film and him sit in you right now? Well, 
he believed in me. He loved that I, in his office, when I was there meeting him on the Warner Brother lot, to talk about why I was right for the role of Freddie Lee Cobb, which Kiefer Sutherland ended up playing. And I had a plan going into that meeting because I'd read the script of the book and I liked the role of Jake McGantz. And so I waited for my moment to say, hey, I think I should be Jake McGantz. And I remember him laughing and throwing his hands up. And, and while he's throwing his hands up, I'm going, that is never going to happen, Matthew. But in his eyes, I saw a twinkle going, I love that you just said you should do it. Who is this guy? I like you even more. I saw it. I felt like the seed was planted. But he liked that radical idea. He liked that rebellious idea. If it was up to him, I think he would have said, like, let's go screen test you tonight and let's get this on. But he was like, never going to happen. Studio's never going never gonna to let it happen. And then he looked out for me after that, even when he got to a place where he said, I want to have a screen test with you. He was very considerate. I remember him saying, we're going to do it at this little vacant room on Fairfax. We're not going to do it at one of the studios. And we're going to, it was a Sunday. It was like a Mother's Day. And he goes, the reason I want to do it there is because even if you do really well in the read, in the test, it's such a long shot for you to get the job. So I don't want to go on your record in Hollywood that, oh, new guy Matthew McConaughey had a screen test for Time to Kill but didn't get it. He goes, it would be a debit. People would look at it like he didn't do well. So I don't even want to make you susceptible to that. So he was already looking out for me. Joel's direction was so smart and simple, especially for a young actor. Uh, it's really good direction for almost any, any actor, but at this time, it's so good for me. I'd never studied acting. When we did the read of that final summation, I did the script version and nailed it. But it wasn't magic, mm -hmm. but it connected the dots and was like, very good. And then he goes, after one day, he goes, throw the script away. Now just say what you would say. You, Matthew. Can you try to replay some of that and what you said? I remember this jury and thinking about telling a story about a young girl being being raped, I thought of myself as the father, which is was easy for me to do because it's the only thing I've ever wanted to be. And it was the job that I have the most reverence for. So I'd imagine myself as a father before. So to imagine myself with a daughter was not a, too far of a reach, even though I wasn't a literal father or biological father. I started gritting my teeth. I started sweating. I started, my eyes welled up. I said a bunch of things that a lawyer would have been in contempt of court to say. And I was going on on anything I was done. And Joe goes, cut, cut, got it, got it. That's what I was talking about. He just wanted to see if I could go there. How could I personalize it? So his direction to me from that day on, when I found out I got the part, he'd always say one thing when I'd be kind of questioning, wait, I don't know if Jake would do this or Jake would do that. He goes, Matthew, you're Jake. You are Jake Brigands. That's it. It's beautiful, simple direction. If you look at Joel's record, look at the people that he's found or that were actors and were good at what they did, but he really gave them a shot to be a powerhouse lead in a film that had a platform to really change that person's career in an amazing way. Mm -hmm. I remember saying to Joe, I was like, all right, tell me one thing. If there's one thing that all your films, I gotta have. And he goes, oh, that's easy. And he turns and he grabs the chalk and he goes up to the chalkboard and he goes, S-E-X-Y. <laughs> <laughs> hence, hence, you know, more sweat, more sweat. Because <laughs> everyone says about time to kill. Jeez, oh man, I've never seen such sweaty people in their lives. It's like, yes, more. And I remember Jill saying this. There's a scene in there where the our house burns down and the dog comes up. It's like a, it's like a golden retriever. Mm -hmm. And I remember going to Joel. I was like, something's a little off for John. The dog's coming back up with soot. 
the dog was in the house when the house burned down, but the doors were locked. Are we be sure the dog would survive? And he cut me off. He goes, ah, Matthew, rule number one for successful blockbuster film, never kill a dog. <laughs> he goes, the dog must live. Trust me. And damn it if he didn't write. To this day, people talk to me about two scenes. One, the summation, which is an obvious thing to come up and talk to me about it from time to time. The other one that really shakes people go, oh, when Jake's there and his dog comes up, <laughs> that, that scene, Joel was right. <laughs> Do not kill the dog, man. The actors can die. Yeah. The dog cannot. The dog does not. And he was so right. <laughs> In 95, 96, you meet Paul Newman. I don't know how much you remember from this meeting, but in 96, you talked to Texas Monthly and you said that Paul Newman, an actor you idolized growing up, he gave you three pieces of advice that you said, I think I'll probably live by. Do you remember what those were? Well, what I remember is getting dropped off by a cab to meet him. And I wanted to be there 10 minutes early, wait outside. And he was uptown New York. His office. And I remember getting dropped off at a cab, mistakenly 20 blocks short, and looking at my watch going, oh, shit, 20 blocks. Nine, I'm supposed to meet him in nine minutes. How do I? And I ran, and it was cold. And I showed up, and I was sweating in the cold. And I got in, and I was just a hair late. Wasn't real happy about that, but I went, and he said, come on in. And I remember him going, what, well, what can I do for you? I remember being starstruck and sort of going, uh, I don't know. I mean, I, 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 I'm, I'm a young actor. I just got to... You know, been doing it for a few years and, and I just was in a role that, uh, you know, I've now become sort of A-list or famous or what have you. And uh, I'm a leading man. And you're, you're, you're one of my favorite leading men that I ever know from movies. And HUD's my favorite film. And I think I told him why and the three generations from HUD. And which he evidently was not a fan of HUD because probably because of why people loved him in HUD like I did. The absolute anarchic individualism bastard that he was, I couldn't help, like so many people go, huh, dude, I don't know how you sleep well at night, how that character sleep well at night after he does the thing he does, but I admire that absolute sort of individuality. Mm -hmm. I think his quote was, I was a bastard in that. Why would you like me? But he had that thing where almost his charm encouraged to go through a role could make you go, God. Love him. And anyway, I mumbled through, bumbled through, stuttered through some things. And he's like, all right. And we, we, we played a little bit of pool. And he didn't offer much. We just kind of hung out, talked about a couple films. And I think you could see in that meeting that I was a young guy who wasn't there to go through a filmography of, oh, here's all my greatest films. And I've studied every film of yours, which I had not. But he saw a young man who was courageous enough to ask to have a meeting with him, a young man who looked up to him and his ability as an actor. And I talked to him about, I was proud about what he had done. I was honored to see a man in our in that business that had maintained a relationship with his wife for that long, had done stuff that he was doing with his charity. So I saw somebody that had built an empire, a brand that was more than just actor for hire. Mm -hmm. And somebody who's Bottom line, he his marriage and stuff that he maintained. And I already knew that just looking at the records that that's hard to do, but really hard in our business. I think he respected that I was asking him questions, not as much about acting, but about who he was as a man and how he sort of maintained that throughout. And on the way out is what I really remember is I was headed out the door and I was shutting the door behind me. And he goes, hey, Matthew. And he was sitting down across the pool table. And he looked up and I, I go, yes, sir. And he goes, give him hell. <laughs> Those are the last words Paul Newman ever said to me, which were really, really cool. That was a bit like my dad saying to me, 
don't half-ass it. Mm -hmm. Give them hell, which is another version of what I've come to learn about not only the entertainment business, but life, is that it's a rodeo, man. (laughs) And we're all just trying to get our eight seconds, but it bucks. So ride the damn bull. Give them hell. Don't half-ass it, you know? It's not all easy street. It just doesn't lay out in front of you. He, he also said, pay attention to the work and try to do things you can be proud of. He said, make your word mean your word. And I also had the last note, which was to give him hell. In your description of it, it sounds like a scene from a movie. Yeah. Well, it's the first time I've retold it in a while. You know, I mean, the words, your word, was he and I talking about being men, the kind of men we, we wanted to be, the kind of man he was, the kind of man I was maintaining, but wanting to become more of and things I'd learned from my own father. And then the do work you're proud of. As I've wrote in the book, you know, I, from right before Time to Kill, I'll, there's a hundred scripts out there. Many, you kidding me? I want to do any of them to be able to work. There are most of them are saying, no, you can't do that. Well, all of a sudden Time to Kill comes out and those hundred scripts are like, yes, you can do any of them. That was a tough time of discernment for me to go, well, what would I be proud of? What, which one of these means something to me? Two days ago, I couldn't do any. Now I can do all of them. The roof of possibilities just come off. And you're asking me to be discerning as a 23-year-old man to go, what do I really want to do? <laughs> 48 hours ago, I'm like, I would have done anything to do any of these. If you look, though, what I did after I took a walk about Monastery and then Peru, I did come back and do work that I was proud of. And I chose to go with what I call philanthropic stories, stories that I thought should be shared in the world that I wanted to be a part of. I didn't have to be the lead a la contact. Jodie Foster had said at that time, what was it, 1997, she was like, why'd you take the girl's role? I remember it for that role. I went in, I feverishly wanted that. I'd written papers in college, some titled John Wayne Goes West. That's where the egotistical utilitarian theme came from. And entering a place like Hollywood, as you could say, has elements that could lean towards a Gamora, but going through it and still holding on to my spirit and soul and some of that purity that little girl lost in Time to Kill. Mm. So it was about faith in a world of science. And I already felt those two were not contradictions, that those two were a paradox, that science was the practical pursuit of God. And I really wanted that stance to play that role of the believer in that film. And I felt that was philanthropic. I felt like that was a story that should be shared. It was topical, social commentary of where we are and the existential questions of what are we doing. From 1999 to 2008, how do you think you did with making your word mean your word and paying attention to the work and trying to do things you could be proud of? So 99, is that a rain of fire probably? What do we got here? What when was that do 99 to 08? There's less rom-com run, right? Uh-huh. That's mixed in with probably we are Marshall, a frailty, more dramatic turns, non-rom-coms, but. <laughs> I like how you're asking me like I was starring with Kate Hudson in a movie. Well, I mean, you probably have the list in front of you. I, <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't remember by dates exactly what it was <laughs> I did. I mean, in hindsight, I think I did all right. I definitely had a period in there where I got less puritanical about trying to be the responsible man. I remember having tell myself to let myself off the hook a little bit about being so damn responsible and being so earnest about stuff and just going, dude, it's okay. You can have some Saturdays. Cause I'm, I forgive myself. The, I'm the last one to forgive myself for something I did. I hold myself to task and I carry guilt of deed in the mind and it can, it can wear on me always has. So I think I know I went through some times of going, Hey, let's let go of the reins here for a minute. 
let's have some Saturdays. <laughs> you've, you've earned them. Go ahead. Enjoy yourself. I didn't ever harm anyone. I, I didn't lie, cheat, and steal, so to speak. I mean, the work and doing the work just as hard as anything I've ever done in that run, for sure even with all the, the rom-coms. And that's always a fallacy with that. You know, the rom-coms think that you just wake up in the morning and roll out and do them. But it's a, it took a lot more than that. You know, I, the gap, and I think this will better lead to answer your question, that led toward the end of 2008 was my life was more vital. My life was more about its word. I cried louder, laughed louder, was angrier, harder than I was a lot of doing movies. And especially in the rom-coms, the ceiling in the basement of the sort of emotions you can give in a role in a rom-com are very compressed and they're buoyant and they bounce across a cloud and they're built to be light. So if I was going to be me, how I felt about things, the movie would last five minutes to be over. I was like, uh-uh, I'm not putting up that. Then I sink the ship, the movie's over. So I was being more honest, obviously, in my own life, I believe, or, or trying to be more honest than I was in the movies, but then I got something like a rain of fire. Boy, that's where I was like, yes, I've got an island of a man who's trying to keep him and the world from going into extinction. Ah, that's clear. Ah, no one's going to tell you you're trying too hard to survive. No one's going to tell you you can't get that angry at somebody that's trying to make you extinct. No, no, no. That blows the ceiling in the basement off. And that was a very sort of agnostic time in my life. This is all about personal responsibility. This is all about your hands are on the wheel. No fatalist vision at all. So I guess, I don't know, backward way to answer your question, I feel like I did pretty well. I never lost myself. I took some exits off the freeway, but I was generally heading in the same direction. I wanted to reflect on that period because I'm thinking about your approach to the past versus your mother's approach. Of her, you've said, when she goes to bed at night, she has regrets. <laughs> But when she rises in the morning, she's forgotten them. It's a hell of a magic trick she pulls off. Where are you on that spectrum? Not where she is. <laughs> <laughs> I envy that quality that she has sometimes because I've always engaged in that battle of, well, what are the things you should just forgive yourself for? And what are the things you should say? The buck stops here. I'm changing that in my life. What are the things I should let myself slide for and who the hell it won't end? And sometimes I've been arrogant with my own self-guilt where I've got to almost go, where do you get off being judge and jury to think you're so wrong for doing that? And that was what I actually needed because sometimes I'd feel guilty about things that I were like, come on, man, that's a human existence, man. The world's forgiven you. You know what I mean? Why are you, Hank? But other things I've said, no, I've got a buck stops here and change it. You read through those years. I took many trips away. I calibrate, recalibrate. I don't come out of those walkabouts back into life going, ta-da, <laughs> you know, ah, oh, now I've got it. You know, it wasn't, there's no real right angles in my sections or seasons of my life or career, but I stayed in the game. I kept trying. I stayed in the game of being the best and most true self I could be. Here, let me tell you a metaphor, which I think sums this up real well. One of our greatest traits in our family, and what is an example of what my mom's talking about right there, is a form of resilience and denial. Meaning, like, my book's titled Green Lights. Part of that, of catching green lights, is some of those yellow lights we see in life that really aren't big drama. 
that maybe we shouldn't really feel guilty for. But if we slow down and wallow in them, all of a sudden we find ourselves dwelling in a red light and we've made a mountain out of a molehill and our heads and hearts are heavy and we've created a big drama. Mm. Well, sometimes you come across those yellow lights and it's best to not slow down put the pedal to the metal and blow through the fucking light and go, I'm not giving that crisis credit. I'm not even going to think about feeling guilty for that because that's a bunch of bullshit. It's nothing. It was just life. It rolled. It's not who you are. That's why I would always, that's when I deal with guilt. I'm just going like, well, wait a minute. My alarm spider sense goes off and goes, well, wait a minute. You're feeling bad about this. And did you repeat offend, you know, or are you a repeat offender? And I'm, when I say one of those things is resilience is my mom's, we were taught, you fall down, you get up, dust yourself off. You forgive yourself quickly. Move on, move on, move on. I wouldn't be where I am without the amount of resilience that I've had that has gotten me to where I am. Whether I practice it or not, I learned this in my mid-20s is that, well, if you hop up and dust yourself off and say it's okay and move on, immediately, every time, you do become a repeat offender. Meaning if you step in that proverbial pothole mm-hmm. in your life and fall down and just keep getting up going, I'm okay, well, the next time you cross that path, you're going to step in the pothole again and do the same damn thing. So in a life where I'm taught with our resilience is everyday summer, I learned to go, wait a minute. This time when I fell in the pothole, I need to stop. And even if someone else passes me in the race, I need to look back at that pothole and go, let's have a little retrospection, introspection here and go, why do we keep stepping in that shit? Why do we keep stepping in that thing? (laughs) Now, my mother does not prescribe to that. My mom's like, she's already, she's already taken off and she'll just keep falling down. She's rough and tough enough to go, I don't care how many times I fall down. I'll just keep going. Well, I was like, you know what? I need to have a look at some things, have a look back, give myself a proverbial winter, an autumn in my day, in my life to have a little look back and figure out why I stepped in that pothole so I can quit stepping in the damn thing. And next time I run around because I've learned I can swerve around it, jump over it or take another path. That is me not going to bed with a list of things I want to improve on and waking up and forgetting them. That's me remembering them. That's me going, no, I want to evolve. I want to change this about myself. I want to course correct this thing that I'm doing that is not feeding me and that keeps making me fall down. Where her, she's just lapping me, bro. (laughs) She's just lapping most of the people in the world. And at 88, it's like, well, who's going to tell her different? I mean, because she's got it rolling. If you met her, she's present. Mm-hmm. She's so present, she forgot just a minute ago. <laughs> so you've created this context for understanding how to navigate through life. And I'm thinking about your mom. I'm thinking about your father. When you were born and throughout your life, your dad would say, Matthew, he was an accident. That ain't my boy, Katie. That ain't my boy, Katie. He wasn't there the night you were born, but he did make a call. Do you remember what he said on the call? Oh, yeah. (laughs) Now, remember, my mom and dad have been trying to have a child for five years, and it didn't work. Dad was convinced, doctor told him, your semen's not sticking, or whatever the technical verbiage that is. And all of a sudden, mom gets pregnant. Well, not only dad, but mom said, like, I thought you were a tumor for five months, because it was like, we've been trying, no way. And all of a sudden, it's like, no, I'm pregnant. So, you know... Again, this is part of the written word and the spoken word. If I perform how my dad said, that ain't my boy, Katie, that ain't my boy, in front of me, I wasn't feeling like, oh, my dad disowns me. He wasn't saying like, that is not my boy, Katie. He's like saying, he knew I was his. <laughs> and he knew I was his, okay? But the night she goes to the doctor, he was not there. And he calls, 
And he goes, one rule. If it's a boy, don't name him Kelly. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why what he had against Kelly's. I don't know if it was personal or if that was more of a, an asexual name. I don't know what I don't know what it was. But I'm sure in that he and my mother shared like there was a joke. He meant it, but there was a humanity and a joke to that. Mm-hmm. I like that it still makes you laugh. Yeah. Well, it's kind of hilarious. Oh, it's incredible. I mean, dad wasn't there down at the bar with his buddies a few blocks away from the hospital where his wife's having her third born newborn child and a real casual call. Oh, yeah. By the way, just one real dumb name, Kelly, if it's a boy. I, I didn't know that he was at the bar down the street. I thought he was like maybe out of state. No, he was in town. <laughs> oh, shit. <laughs> well, I do wonder, you know, your parents got divorced. Mm. Then they got back together. Then I think they got divorced again. Always and only to themselves. There is an instability and romanticism to all that. Yeah. But throughout your life... Being told that your very existence was not intentional. Right. It was not supposed to happen. There is a kind of heedlessness in that that's completely in contradiction with how you've lived and designed your life. I go to your book here in which you write, Create structure so you can have freedom. Map your direction so you can swerve in the lanes. Choreograph, then dance. Mm-hmm. What do you make of that? The fluidity of your parents versus the calculated roadmap of your life? Well, I think it's a little bit of what I said earlier about I learned early on in my family that taught us, you better be damn happy the sun came up this morning. You better quit griping about not having shoes. I'm going to introduce you to the boy with no feet to be so happy with just the idea of waking up. There's great value in that. But also it leads into that you got to be less impressed and more involved. That doesn't mean just walk around going, woohoo. You know, you got to be about something. You got to, you got to, to be involved in life. Same thing with the running of the potholes, the resilience to look back and go, now wait a minute. I'm tired of stepping in that pothole. I'm tired of stepping in shit right there. I'm going to, instead of doing it again, trusting that I have the resilience to get back up and make it through it, I'm actually going to figure out a way to dodge it next time. My family didn't do much of that. My parents didn't do much of that. They were, Man, helter-skelter, let's rock, and let's go forward, and we're divorced. Oh, geez, this is one of my favorite things about divorce, honey, is coming back together. They were creating, and maybe they were subconsciously creating two extra honeymoons for themselves, you know, because they they went to the extreme of how they went about it. But my, my family is much more jump off the cliff, figure out how to fly on the way down. There's more dangerous risk in doing that. And I must say though, and as much as I talk about conservative, very liberal late, where things I've gotten, I do have plans. I do write the proverbial headline a lot of times, then live to try to live the story toward. But on equal amount, I would say, my walkabouts to Mali or Peru, that was just about getting out the door going, I don't know what I'm gonna find. The work I've done the last 10 years in dramas, after the rom-coms were like, oh shit, I don't know what I'm going to do with this role, but I'm going to dive in and try and find out. Mm -hmm. So there were risks that I take that were more like my parents' risk of, well, just do it. 
Just do it. But thinking about it, my parents would always, but all, even early on, I was the thinker in the family. I was the one that the one who would debate as a lawyer. I one that would, you know, keep asking the questions why until they would go, because I said so. Jeez, you're tiring me out. And I get it. I have a child that's a big why, why, why guy. And I get it. It's beautiful, but it's like, oh, and I know where he gets it from. My wife's like, mm, that's mm, you. Mm, but that's always been me. I want to get down to the underneath. I don't want to just do things because, well, that's, that's how they go. And I never did as a child. And it would tire my parents out. And the other two brothers didn't do it. My other two other brothers didn't do it. For me, when I say create the structure to have the freedom, I go into the book often, very thoroughly, I think, about the value of that. And places where when I didn't do that, I paid the price for it. Here's a great example metaphor I think you'll get. I don't have drawers in my kitchen or my bedroom. Everything I have big, wide, great metal so you can see in it. Because if it's behind the drawer, I'll forget it's there. I need the visual. I'm still learning to go, hey, if I'm in this room and I have the key, can I let you shut and lock that door and trust mm -hmm. now that I can't see it that this key is actually going to work in that lock? to get me to that door. I'm like, no, 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 just leave it cracked. Just, just, I know I got the key, but just leave it cracked. I got a visual, okay, I'm good. So I'm still learning about going, no, trust it. And the time, most of the times when I say, jump off, trust it, lock the damn door. No, a lot of times I've had my greatest rewards from that. I'm going like, no, just trust it. You'll figure it out. You'll come up on the other side. You have, you have the goods, you have the key. <laughs> Remember, it's in your pocket, <laughs> you know what I mean? You don't have to be able to see the other room that you want to go to to trust that the key that you can get there by the key you have in your pocket. So not every director probably wants to work with me in a movie that for that reason. Man, pre-production, I'm heavy duty. I'm workload, but I'm going to question. I'm going to dig deeper. I'm going to ask the directors questions, interrogate them about the character. I mean, sometimes they're like, can we just go shoot the damn thing? <laughs> you know, you talked about these films in the aftermath of doing rom-coms. I'm going to do a short list. Lincoln Lawyer, Killer Joe, Bernie, Paperboy, Mud, Magic Mike, Dallas Buyers Club, Wolf of Wall Street, True Detective, Interstellar. When you're looking back now in that four or five year run, what is the film and what is the performance that you are most proud of? That film you brought up, Mud, has always been one. And for the reason being, that's the one that I've had daydreams and nightdreams of my father actually coming to me at 12 years old and going, hey, buddy got this film we ought to go see me i'm going it's open up in the theater tomorrow next week it's, it's a good one it's called mud and i can see him leaning into me and watching it him kind of leaning over and rubbing his shoulder with me at certain points and then being like oh god damn boat in a tree look at this it's a good part right here buddy this is a good ball oh man he still does his boat's crossed from mine well, ain't that something Now, I like you two boys. You remind me of me. See as how you two is from Arkansas, and we know some of the same people, and we grew up in some of the same places. I reckon we can make a deal for something. A deal for what? Food. Food for a boat. He's a bum, Ellis. Come on. Why don't you go get your own food? Well, I would if I could. See, I told somebody I'd meet him here, so... Well, I'm stuck for now, and what I got's running low. He's a bum, Ellis. Come on. I ain't no bum. I got money, boy. You can call me a hobo because a hobo will work for his living. You can call me homeless because 
Well, that's true for now, but you call me a bum again, I'm gonna teach you something about respect your daddy never did. When they show up, you'll leave? Yep. And when you leave, that boat's ours? That's right. It's the one that my father would have come to me and said, it's a good one. And for him, that was his highest mark of excellence. If something was like, or person, he'd say, oh, he's a good one. She's a good one. You knew that person, you could let take care of your kids for a year if you wanted. Dad said they're a good one. Let me talk more about, because I could go into Dallas Buyers. I could go into True Detective. I could go into how True Detective was 450-page script, where all I'd ever done before was 120-page scripts, and how I had a complete symphony marked out of exactly where my character was. And I remember after a month of shooting, and I was playing the early days of Rustin Cole, who's very much everything's under the hood, of going... I think this is going to be boring. I got to punch my performance, maybe really boring. I got to like break out and then saying, no, 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 trust yourself. It's a longer story. You don't, when you become, when Russ and Cole becomes crash, the more you are bubbling under the hood right now, the more dynamic that will have and punch then. And it will actually reverb and make this first two episodes where you're very underplayed. It'll reveal more dynamic in this part that you're doing now as well. Then you go to Dallas Buyers Club. I've got so much ownership through this phase of my man. I am the master of my man in all of those runs you just reeled off. I'm seeing my character so well clearly from the inside out. I'm not asking anybody permission. Yeah, I work with the director. I talk with you. I take direction. But I know him so well that you could put a blindfold on me, take me to Neptune, and drop me off, and I'll be that character in whatever you put in front of me. Having that confidence those were experiences for me to live through those characters or to have those characters be vessels going through me at the time. That was a time where I felt my, my work was as vital as my life. It wasn't a different hat to sort of put on. I mean, it wasn't like I was living and then I was an actor. Yeah, I was doing that, but I was working back to back. My family was on the road with me. My wife was saying, let's go. Let's go. You're loving this. You want to do it? We'll make it happen. Go. I got the kiddos. We're with you. So creatively turned on. Seeing the world through those characters' eyes and what those characters have in myself. When I say again, I go back to that word ownership. I was not acting like one. I was being the character. I wasn't playing a part. That's who I was. That's the greatest feeling as an actor to get to that point. Doesn't always happen. Mm. It's hard to, hard to do it. Sometimes the actual script doesn't even have enough to allow you to go to the imagination and find that. But I would say, yeah, mud for the father and then all those, even like Killer Joe. Did I write about him? I wrote about the book, William Friedkin, Killer Joe. Guess what the rule is on the set here, everybody? One take. It's great. Because we all go proverbially, oh, shit. And so just as you tighten up, I remember I tighten up. And just as I tighten up in this year, the other year said, well, fucking perfect. That's all it should be. Ha! <laughs> ah. So talk about courage to get up on it and go. You know, teeing it up and let me find it on the way and save something for later. No, one take. It's fourth down every take. Every day. And there's a great lesson in that. Super lesson. Because actually, everything after take one in any film story is acting. Take one's the take. Well, if you really know your person and you really know where you're coming from, where you're going, what you want, what the obstacle is, what you need, take one's the one. Mm. After that. It is acting. Now, yes, we can improve performances on take two, three, four, five, six, if we're good actors, but take one's the, the, the take. <laughs> I mean, everything else after that is acting. Do you think you'll ever show your kids the drumstick scene? 
Um, well, they'll see that. Look, I suppose they'll be old enough, but they'll see it on their own. <laughs> That's the only time in this hour where you've gone. I um, yeah. Uh, not anytime <laughs> soon, sir. Um, you know, that's like my kids haven't seen most of any of my stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's why, you know, one of the reasons I want to go do Sing and Kubo and the Two Strings and stuff, because, you know, my kids aren't ready for this book. My kids are 12, 10, 7. My kids are not ready for to see the drums. They're not ready to watch Killer Joe. No, I mean, that's going to raise way too many questions mm-hmm. that are going to be hard to answer because their minds aren't equipped to understand that that's a an example or, or a dramatized moment of something that, you know, could go on in the world, but doesn't really go on. <laughs> they, it may go on. We just don't need to know about it. Um, by the way, I'm 26 and I'm not sure I'm ready to watch that scene again. So <laughs> your dear friend, Richard Linklater said in time magazine a few years back, people underestimate the utter intentionality of what Matthew's done. He's really good at going from A to B to C. He's got a plan, and he's just brave enough and brazen enough to execute it. Matthew wasn't discovered in a bar for Dazed and Confused. He went over to the guy who we heard was casting it. Matthew's always playing the long game. You just turned 51, I think about three weeks ago, two, three weeks ago. You're someone, as Richard says, that goes from A to B to C. You know, what's D to E to F for you? Yeah, good question. And one that I've been getting asked and one that I naturally have been having with other friends of mine. That has nothing to do with interviews. Just friends of mine discuss the same thing. And it's what I have my friends for. That's the stuff we talk about. What are we doing? What's coming up next? And I was talking to somebody last night about, well, look, if I'm 51, get fortunate today by today's math. You could say 100, but there are not many men that live to be 100. And we're going to go ahead and be bold enough to say things can go as planned. We're going to live to be 100. Well, the last five, as far as I can tell, aren't real great. <laughs> They're not, you're not running around, you know. I mean, what? how much more is it going to be where I'm really on my own two legs, making my own choices going forward with the energy that I've got and creativity? Maybe the answer to that is 25. Jimmy Iovine has a great line. Guy with beats. Mm-hmm. It's about how many summers you got left. How many more summers do we got left? So what's next for me? I definitely will keep on telling stories, meaning I would like to write in the book, got rid of three filters of my communication, which movies are four filters removed from the raw expression of the actor. Writing the book is one filter. It's a written word. As I said to you earlier, I was going to take this book on tour. I was going to go off and tell the stories. That's a form of stand-up. I'd still like to do that. Maybe it's a live Broadway play. I'd still like to do that. I still got some, some musical ambitions, the songs and stuff that I, I write and rap, by the way. I do believe Bob Dylan was the original best rapper, especially his mid-60s stuff. <laughs> I'm glad we got that on the record. Yes. I've got leadership roles that I'm very interested in and working on this Minister of Culture title that I created for myself. And it's a category that is not political, but I believe it's something that can be really, really prudent for a lot of people. It's a shared and competent values campaign that I'm creating that I want to put out there. What does that mean, Minister of Culture? So a Minister of Culture in other countries, they oversee tourism, sports, music, and youth for things that I'm very instinctually interested in and love to think about culture around the world, all my travels. What are the things, what are some values that are common denominators across socioeconomic scales, people, places, sexes, races? What are those values that can be put in place that we can remind ourselves of? 
And how can we get those aligned with each other to rebind our social contracts that we're so broken right now? That's what Ministry of Culture is. What's our overall culture? And then I want to challenge each one of us individuals to say, how are we each a minister of our own personal culture? Mm -hmm. That there's responsibility to freedom and there's freedom in responsibility. Can I get institutions and individuals in a city to go, yep, we all agree on that way of human decency. And that means of fairness and integrity and hospitality and respect for selves and, and others. I think those lines are blurry now. And I think we can redefine them. And it's not rocket science. It's stuff our mama's taught us. I don't want to remind us all of those that we can all agree on. So we can have some step forward that we can go, yep, we may not agree politically or denominationally, but hey, we agree on this between us as, as, as decent humans. So I've got leadership roles that I'm investigating. What is my best way? What, how can I be most useful? Mm -hmm. I want to write again. I loved writing this book. In talking about this book for the last six weeks, it has helped crystallize a little bit about what the next thing could be. It's crystallized some ideas. Some of the ideas in here have already turned the page and evolved into uh, and into more theories and philosophies that, I, that I'm feeling right now are very sound. I've got three kids to still raise. That's my main job as a father. I've still got three children. If they go on to be 18 years old and that's the time they move out of the house, I've got day and day shepherding to do and raising of these kids as their father for at least the next 11 years. Fatherhood won't end after that, but then they may be out of the house and on their own. Then there is another season where Camilla and I look at each other and go, hey, talking about honeymoons, <laughs> what do you want to do? Do we go downsize somewhere? Do we hop back in the Airstream and travel North America? Uh, because now we can be so mobile. We're learning and proving this in this COVID time. You can basically, if you got 5G, go live wherever the hell you want. <laughs> you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. You can be there. So those are a bunch of things that are on my, my plate. And it's a great question to ask. If I can do whatever I wanted, what would I do? Well, I bring this up because before you can figure out what exactly you want to do with the next 50 years, God willing. Shortly after your father passed, on September 1st of 1992, you wrote down 10 goals in life in your diary. Would you mind reading them to people listening? Yeah. 10 goals in life, September the 1st, 1992. Number one, become a father. Number two, find and keep the woman for me. Number three, keep my relationship with God. Number four, chase my best self. Number five, be an egotistical utilitarian. Number six, take more risks. Number seven, stay close to my mom and family. Number eight, win an Oscar for best actor. Number nine, look back and enjoy the view. Number 10, just keep living. Signed, Neem. You talk about in this book, about writing your own eulogy every day. When you look at those 10 goals, how do you think you've done? Well, if I'm measuring off of those goals, I think I've done pretty well because I have achieved or I'm in the midst of still achieving each and every one of those. That most of those are still active goals that I've already done the work to put myself in the place to where I'm still connected to each one of those. So I didn't find those goals last year and go, oh, what happened to that? Or, oh, I haven't even thought about that. But here's the weird thing about that. When I found that, why it blew me away a bit is that I never looked at that list of goals again after the night I wrote them. I remember clearly the night I wrote them. I'd just taken a pinch hit and I was in the top level bunk of my Delta house 
Monty Wills, my roommate, was downstairs. I was just about to go to bed, and I wrote these goals down and never looked at them again. And then I look up and find that, and I go, well, you thought you forgot them, but obviously you remembered them subconsciously, you know, put them down. Evidently, they were maybe, I don't know, such true goals for me that I just didn't have to look at them again, didn't have to play grab ass with them, didn't have to pull them out every day and measure and say, hey, how am I doing towards you? That they were ingrained in me. They were true for me. Evidently, in some way, they must have been because, like I said, most of them have either happened or in the midst of happening. And those 10 goals are also, people ask me, so what's your next 10 goals? And I go, well, I don't, I don't know. Maybe I wrote those down a few years ago and already forgot those too. I mean, I'll find those 30 years from now. But a lot of those goals are still about me enriching them, letting those goals grow wider and deeper. Looking forward to looking back. I'm not a big look backer. Well, I just went and looked back deeper and longer than I ever have and writing this book and looked at 50 years of my life. And it was an intimidating thing to do. But once I did it, I was like, oh, all right. You're not so bad. All right, I kind of dig you. You're kind of the same dude you were at 14 <laughs> at 51. <laughs> you know what I mean? So I'm still in the middle of those. And I have to keep, if I call each one of those a garden, I have to keep tending those gardens. Well, I didn't know you at 14, but I am glad to meet you now. It was easy, like your title, man. It was easy. (laughs) Matthew McConaughey, thank you very much. You are welcome. Till next. our show. Special thanks this week to Nicole Perez Kruger and Jimmy Ruggiero. Matthew's memoir, Green Lights, is now available wherever you do your reading. To learn more, visit www.greenlights.com. To learn more about Mr. McConaughey, you can visit our show notes at talkeasypod.com. If you need more conversations like this one over the holidays, I'd recommend listening to our episodes with Ted Danson, Beto O'Rourke, Edward Norton, Malcolm Gladwell, Hassan Minaj, and Willem Dafoe. You can find all of those on our website or wherever you podcast. Spotify, Apple, Google, Stitcher, Amazon. You can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at TalkEasyPod. And if you'd like to join our mailing list, drop me a line at TalkEasyPod at gmail.com. Our executive producer is Janixa Bravo. Illustrations by Krisha Shenoy. Our associate producer is Nikki Spina. Our lead editor is Andre Lin. Our assistant editors are David Harding, Kevin Korr, and Joshua Siegel. Music by Dylan Peck. Marketing by Patrice Lee. Our interns are Juliana Rector, Grace Perkins, and Ian Simmons. Graphics by Derek Gaberzak and Ethan Seneca. And the show is produced by Caroline Reebok. I'm Sam Fragoso. Thank you for listening to Talk Easy. We'll be back next week with a very special announcement. Until then, please stay safe over the holidays, and I'll see you back here soon. So long. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards 
from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored among some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventionalawards. See you there. It's the Kia Summer Sticker Sales Event, so give your friends something to look at, like a B&B with an ocean view, an endless field of wildflowers, or a sunset that needs no filter. Make this a summer to share and save with a capable Kia SUV or powerful sedan. See your local Kia dealer or visit kia.com to learn more. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-334-KIA for details. Always drive safely. Sale applies to purchase of specially tagged 2024 vehicles only. Quantities are limited. Must take delivery by 7824. Smart journalism. Fascinating topics. Words that describe CNN's podcast, The Assignment with Audie Cornish. Last year, the Army missed its recruitment goal. It had 65,000 spots to fill and came up 10,000 short of that target. Why is it so hard to recruit? How's the Pentagon responding? And how are the voices of service members on social media shifting the balance? Listen to The Assignment with Audie Cornish wherever you get your podcasts.